You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Last Sunday night, you remember we spent some time looking through the Old Testament and the New Testament, kind of walking through the Bible, certain sections of the Scripture, tracing this theme of, of Christian worship. And, and we gleaned some insights there. And again, I had intended last week to begin to go through the history of the church as well. Of course, we didn't, didn't have time for that. But one of the reasons I think we, we had the need for this series that I reiterated last week is that I just think in general as, as churches, as Christians, we're just kind of really confused about what's going on in worship about what should be involved in our worship service, about the order of service, the elements of of our worship. And so I think a reason for that is we just tend not to think very biblically about things. In other words, a lot of times we believe the authority of Scripture, but we don't always think through how does this actually look in a local church setting as we gather for worship each week. And in addition, I think we're just kind of historically ignorant when it comes to the history of Christian worship. Um, Because as we look at the history of Christian worship, we see a lot of highs and we see a a lot of lows, a lot of times of spiritual decline that often leads to a decline in worship. So tonight's goal uh, is kind of to continue to think through this principle that, um, again, kind of aims through this whole series. Let me reiterate it for you in case you've forgotten. But again, what I'm trying to demonstrate here is that worship in the church should be governed and regulated by the Scriptures. That worship in the church should be governed and regulated by by the scriptures. So tonight, I'm going to try to walk through church history, and it's going to be a a brief run through church history, particularly as it pertains to the worship, the corporate worship of the church. And then the goal is for next week, kind of this final week of this series before our members meeting on December 9th, uh, I want to take next week and kind of think through each of these elements of worship that the Bible prescribes for us, and kind of think through what it is, and then how are we trying to put that into practice in terms of, of worship at Redemption Church. So next week aims to think through the practice of worship in a local body like like ours, like Redemption Church. So tonight, though, we we turn our attention to to the history of Christian worship. And again, uh, it's just a lot to go through in a short amount of time. And so I've tried to be intentional in terms of giving you an understanding, not just of church history, because I, I assume a lot of you are probably unfamiliar with the history of the Christian church, but trying to think through particularly its worship. So we're going to divide uh, kind of uh, the, the historical overview into a few different sections. And again, you can jot these down if you like, but this is, these are kind of ways historians typically break up different, uh, different portions of church history. And so first, we're going to look at worship in the patristic era, meaning the, the era of the church fathers, as they're often called, hence the patristic era. And we're going to go all the way through the medieval era. So this is around 180 to 1500 AD, so patristic to the medieval era. So we're going to look at that section first. Uh, Then we're going to look at the area of Reformation, worship in the Reformation. And from there, the time frame will be around 1500 to 1700 AD. And again, these are kind of rounded numbers. And then we will look at uh, modern evangelical worship uh, or evangelicalism and its worship from the 1700s to today. So those are kind of the sections we're going to break it up. And so what I'm going to try to do is literally just kind of walk through chronologically what has gone on with Christian worship and then make a few concluding observations and applications kind of at the end of the message tonight, which I think will tee us up and set us up next week to come back and really think through how are we going to worship as, as Redemption Church. So let's start with worship in the patristic era. And so as we think through the patristic era, one of the, the most insightful primary sources we have on worship in the patristic area comes from a guy named Justin Martyr, who was called uh, one of the apologists. And and these apologists weren't like apologizing for Christianity, but these were were defenders of of Christianity. They were defending the faith. And so there were a lot of confusion. This new Christian thing has come up out of nowhere. And how do we understand what's going on? I mean, that we, we hear they're eating flesh and drinking blood. What is that about? And so these apologists helped produce some writings to try to defend to the pagan Roman Empire. No, here's what we're doing, and here's what we're about as, as Christians. And so within Justin Martyr's first apology, written around 150 AD, so this is kind of right after uh, the era of the apostles, 
we get a picture, this description he gives us of worship kind of right after the time of the apostles. And so let me kind of read this excerpt for you. And again, I think it just gives you an insight of here's what worship kind of looked like right after the era of the apostles within the second century. So here's what he wrote. He says, and we afterwards continually remind each other of these things. And the wealthy among us help the needy, and we always keep together. And for all things wherewith we are supplied, we bless the maker of all through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Ghost. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead, for he was crucified on the day before that of Saturday, and on that day after that of Saturday, which is the day of the sun, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration." So what is Justin Martyr describing there? Well, the church gets together on Sunday. They read the Bible. They give some money to support each other, particularly those who are wealthy. And then they have somebody explain the Bible, right? This is Christian worship. He also goes into a little bit. We didn't have time to look at it, but talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about baptism. And so we see that the picture of, of kind of the early patristic era is worship kind of looks kind of similar to what we did this Sunday morning. But what one of the things we're going to see as we go from the patristic era to the medieval era is that things begin to change kind of quite rapidly. And we say rapidly, but these are several centuries of time, getting all the way to 1500 AD, right? A lot of things begin to happen. And if you uh, are unfamiliar with church history, there is one moment in the history of the church where everything drastically changes. And this happens when Emperor Constantine is converted to Christianity. And when Constantine is converted to Christianity, he enacted the Edict of Milan in 313 AD. And at that moment, things really began to change for the church because now Christianity, the Edict of Milan, what it did was it made Christianity a legal, tolerated religion of the Roman Empire. In other words, it wasn't illegal to be a Christian anymore. And so what began to happen is the Christian church not only became tolerated and accepted by society at large, but it became, over the, over the next few generations, it became found with increasing favor in the Roman Empire. Now, this was a big change because the church goes from being the persecuted minority, uh, constantly hiding in houses and worshiping together in that sense. And now, after Constantine, the church is accepted. Uh, the church and state often get wedded together in a way that uh, for Baptists we see as very unhealthy. And so as Baptists looking back, we, we see the Edict of Milan as probably the worst thing that ever happened in the history of the Christian church because it's here where a lot of these unhealthy things begin to come into the church. And so as the church begins to, to, to spread and grow and flourish, um, as the church becomes culturally accepted, a lot of things began to shift and change when it came to the church's corporate worship practices. And again, it's difficult to really trace how these practices shift and change because a lot of these churches were very diverse in the way they practice some of these elements of worship. There wasn't this uniform set of practices as we'll see in the heart of the medieval era when the Catholic church is at the height of its power. And so what we see happening is that there are are a lot of things going on. And so one of the things that's going on that happens from the patristic era to the medieval era is this distinction between the clergy and the laity. This distinction between the clergy and the laity. Now, the Reformation is going to do away with that in a good, in a good way. But what begins to happen is that the leaders of the church begin to be set apart in a way of having unique authority over congregations. So in terms of the leadership structure, of the, of the patristic era, what developed after the age of the apostles was something called monarchical episcopacy. Now, what is that? Say that three times fast. In other words, what began to happen is that a certain bishop would emerge that would be the ruler, the monarch, over a region of churches in an area. 
So you would get things like, you know, the, the Bishop of Alexandria, right, who would be over that city, its churches, and kind of surrounding regions of Carthage, of Antioch, of Rome. And so you had a lot of these kind of communities where, uh, you know, they might practice worship a little differently in Rome than they did in Antioch or in Carthage or in Alexandria. So it's difficult to pinpoint exactly what's going on in each of these regions simply because we just don't have the resources to know. But what began to happen is this clergy-laity distinction, and what eventually emerged was the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, which led to the invention of the papacy. Now, this really became a a big factor uh, when Pope Gregory I uh, came in around 590-604 AD, and, uh, and eventually uh, there was kind of this assertion of the primacy of the bishop of Rome, uh, this idea of apostolic succession. We don't have time to go into all of that tonight, but what began to happen is there began to be much more of a top-down approach from the, patri- uh, from the patristic era to the medieval era to what begins to happen over centuries is that church tradition and the papal office begin to take precedent over what the scriptures actually say concerning worship and concerning the practice of the church. But you have to remember, nobody owned a personal copy of a Bible back then, right? Possessing a personal copy of the scriptures was unheard of. A lot of the common people going to churches were illiterate. They couldn't read, let alone be able to read the scriptures. And so they're dependent upon what, what their, their pastor or, or what became the priest had to tell them, right? So they, there wasn't a lot of information. You couldn't just go and read and learn for yourself what the Bible has to say. You were dependent upon someone else to communicate it to you. And over the centuries, this clergy-laity distinction began to lead the church into a very wrong direction. And so another thing we see during this patristic medieval era shift is a shift in buildings, right? Buildings. And again, Christians tend to love buildings. But those first couple centuries of the church, uh, they met in houses, they didn't have a building. They didn't meet in a school like this one, right? They met, they met in houses in secrecy. And so for about two, two, the first 200 years of the church, there was no, no buildings. Um, but again, as Constantine made Christianity more tolerated and more prestigious in society, we start to see buildings crop up throughout the Roman Empire after that time. And again, religious art, particularly as you think about the icons and the imagery that defines a lot of Catholic worship and Eastern Orthodox worship, a lot of that really didn't start creeping up until 315 A.D., several centuries after Jesus and the apostles. Because the early Christian writers, guys like Justin Martyr and others, they, they condemned icons and imagery as idolatry, as a violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. And so we see buildings begin to crop up over the next several centuries. And we also see the Lord's Supper and the understanding of the Lord's Supper begin to shift over those centuries. We see the the idea of the Lord's Supper become the Eucharist. This idea of the Lord's Supper moving from a banquet to be enjoyed and celebrating and remembering what Christ has done for the church to becoming a ceremony. And so there became this increasing emphasis on the Lord's Supper as a sacrament in order to give and receive grace. That I need to take of the Lord's Supper to receive grace from God. And what happened, again, we're it's very simplified, but over centuries, what began to happen, particularly in the Middle Ages, was the development of a doctrine called transubstantiation. Say that one three times fast. But this comes from this uh, Catholic idea grounded in Aristotelian philosophy of this idea of accident and substance, in which this idea that, the, that when the, the priest rings the little bell at Mass, that what happens is that that bread and that, that wine literally becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And you have to take that. You have to eat it because this is the way you get grace from God. You don't get it by justification by faith alone. That's going to come later. But this sacramental theology began to develop. And so the Lord's Supper goes from something to rejoice as we celebrate and remember Christ and what he done to become almost like a new sacrifice for sin that's happening every Sunday at Mass. And you better be there to get the grace of God that week. And so we see that shift begin to happen. We also see a shift in baptism over those centuries in terms of the church and its practice. And uh, again, as Baptists, uh, we would hold to that the apostles and the early church, that they baptized believers by immersion. And that seems, historical evidence would point to, that's what happened for those first few centuries. And so the shift to infant baptism becoming the majority view 
happened around 400 to 600 AD. And again, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when that shift happened. But again, Justin Martyr, from his first apology, remember back in 150 AD, describes baptism, and it describes a lot like a Baptist view of baptism, if you ask me. Listen to what he said. He said, those who believe what we teach and are willing to live accordingly are instructed to ask God in prayers and fasting to forgive their past sins. We pray and fast with them. They are brought to a place where there is water and bathed in the name of God the Father and Lord of all and of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. And so again, that sounds a lot like believer's baptism. Uh, And so what began to happen is as Christianity moves from a cultural minority in those first few centuries to a cultural majority, uh, there became this increasing need to baptize people into the church. People were coming in large quantities now that Christianity was tolerated and even being embraced by the Roman emperor. And so we see that these large fluxes of people, the church began to practice more and more infant baptism in certain regions. And again, the, the spread of infant baptism really came from Augustine and the development of the doctrine of original sin. And particularly as you think about what it was like to live in those early centuries uh, of, of the world, and you think about what it was like to have infant mortality where infants literally died all the time. And so you think about this need of, all right, if the doctrine of original sin means my child is guilty from birth because of sin, then this idea that baptism actually removes original sin became really, really crucial because now I need to baptize my baby before they die so that way original sin can be removed so that they can be, be saved. And so you can see that, that what began to happen is power and grace began to be applied to the Lord's Supper and to baptism itself, and these start to take on sacramental meaning, meaning I got to participate in these, I got to receive these, or I don't get grace from God, which means I, I go to hell. And so we see more and more how this sacramental theology develops and kind of spurs on the advancement of infant baptism. Of course, in terms of reading and teaching in the church, that became less and less significant. Before long, after as you go into the 15th, uh, the 15th century and 14, 1500s, um, mass was done in Latin. In fact, mass was done in Latin all the way up to 1965. This is 50 years ago. Vatican II is what did away with Latin mass. And so you're thinking, all right, I'm sure a lot of you have a hard time following along with me, and I speak English, right? <laughs> imagine if all of worship was in, in Latin, right? You couldn't understand what was going on. Even if the, the priest was teaching and expounding faithfully God's word, you couldn't understand it, right? You couldn't understand what was being said. And so there wasn't this teaching and catechesis and and, and instruction to the church. And so a lot of people just kind of just became uh, kind of mystics and just kind of really didn't know what the Christianity was about much at all. Singing in the church became more of a spectacle. It went from more congregational emphasis of singing to, to singers and choirs, uh, particularly during the rise of the medieval church. And so what we see happening is from the patristic era to the medieval era, and we did a very quick run through, but what we see happening is the early church's worship turned into Catholic mass. And it didn't happen overnight. It happened century after century with subtle changes here or there. But before long, what developed was this idea of the sacraments, that in order to be saved, you had to partake of the sacraments of the church, these seven sacraments of the Catholic church, which are baptism, the Eucharist, Lord's Supper, confirmation, penance, anointing of the sick, matrimony and holy orders, right? You had, to, you had to participate in these sacraments of the church or you weren't saved. And so worship became mass, meaning that you had to be there because if you weren't there, you weren't getting your grace for the week. And so it wasn't until the Reformation where there was this return to what the scriptures actually said about worship, about doctrine, about theology. And so that leads us into this next section of worship in the Reformation from 1500 A.D., to 1700 AD. Now, the Reformation was a fascinating time, and if you haven't read a lot of what's gone on there, it's interesting what was happening all over Europe at that time, particularly with the Renaissance. And one of the big themes of the Renaissance was ad fontes, which is Latin for to the source. And so there was this big emphasis during culture during that time of, all right, let's go back and what did the Greeks say? What did these people have to say? Let's go to the sources and study what they have to say. 
And that same attitude began to come into the church as more and more people begin to think, well, you know, we've got the church, we've got all these traditions, we've got all this thing that we're doing. Well, what, is, what does the scripture actually say about this? And so you have guys like Erasmus and guys like Luther beginning to go back to the scripture and say, what does the Bible say the church is about? What does the Bible say about salvation? And so there's this return to the, the source and this return to the scripture began to fuel what was the Protestant Reformation. And so the, right before the dawn of the Reformation, again, which kind of is signified by Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg in 1517, but at that event, there was a lot building up to the, to the need for the Reformation. Over the centuries, more and more corruption had infiltrated the church and its worship. Uh, simony was happening, which means a lot of people were buying priestly offices. You know, if you were wealthy, you could purchase uh, you know, a bishop position or a priest position, and you could get some extra money. And so you've got a lot of people buying ministry jobs, which I'm sure doesn't go over very well because you got people who aren't educated in the scriptures trying to shepherd and lead God's people. You had a lot of really wonky things going on with the, the sacrament of penance and indulgences. And so you had the church constantly wanting to fundraise to build more buildings. And so you had guys like Johann Tetzel going around selling indulgences, meaning, hey, if you buy this piece of paper, right, then then your dead grandma can, can get out of purgatory a little earlier that if you just buy this. So there's a lot of really strange things going on. There were uneducated priests who didn't know Latin, who couldn't do the mass. And so there was just all sorts of things going on. And as guys like Luther saw it, uh, they saw the need for reform. They saw the, the, the discovery of justification by faith that, hey, we don't need the sacraments to be saved. We just need Jesus. And we can trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, and that that, and on the basis of God's grace alone, we can be saved. And that began to infiltrate and change the way the Reformers thought about worship. One of the most immediate changes the Reformers made was to begin worshiping in the vernacular of the people, meaning let's worship in language that people can understand. All right, let's teach in language that people can understand. So if I'm a German monk teaching German people, I'm going to speak German to them, not, not Latin. I want them to be able to understand what I have to say. And not only that, but there was this huge emphasis of let's get the Bible into people's hands. Let's translate the Bible. So one of the big things Luther did that a lot of people don't realize was such a huge deal was he translated the Bible into German so that the people could read it. One of the other things Luther did that furiated his enemies is that he wrote everything, all his pamphlets and things in German so that the common people could read them. You know, typically when you're having a theological debate, you didn't write in the vernacular of the people, you wrote in Latin. And so only other scholars and priests could kind of read and interact with you. But Martin Luther said, no, forget you guys, I'm going to reach the people. And so he starts writing in German, and his writings just sell like wildfire. And so one of the big shifts that happened in the Reformation is worshiping in the language of the people that you're ministering to. Again, a big change that we don't think about but a big change that happened in the history of the church. One of the other things that happened during the Reformation was the recovery of biblical and expositional preaching. And we'll talk about how Eurek Zwingli did that in just a little bit. Another thing that we saw happen in the Reformation is the removal of images and icons. This was a, a, a big deal that started happening slowly. And again, it frustrated some about how slow these reforms in corporate worship were happening. But a guy named Andreas Karlstadt was very frustrated with Martin Luther over how slow he seemed to be implementing his changes. So Luther was wise. He was smart. He knew that if he changed all of worship on one Sunday, the people were going to riot against him. And so he was slow and methodical and patient. And guys like Karlstadt was like, no, we need to change everything now, right? Let's, let's take down all these icons, take down all this religious imagery. It's, it's idolatry. We need to remove it. And so Luther was, uh, so Karlstadt was frustrated with Luther's slowness. And so here's what Karlstadt had to say, just so you can kind of see what was going on. He says, it is wrong to use the giving of offense and brotherly love as an excuse for maintaining idols and allowing the mass and other blasphemies to blossom and flourish under the pretext of not wanting to offend or of showing brother love. So so guys like Karlstadt said, no, we need to change more and we need to change faster. And so Luther was like, no, let's hold down a little bit. We don't want to lose the people. But we see this dissolution of icons and religious imagery throughout the Reformation period. And guys like the Swiss reformers, like Ulrich Zwingli, 
uh, two years after his appointment in Zurich in 1519, he decided to do away with the established lectionary of the church and assign Bible readings. And Zwingli decided that he's going to begin with the first chapter of Matthew's gospel and work through the whole text until he's done with the book. So we see Zwingli take the church back to expositional preaching, verse by verse, explaining of the Bible. We also see Zwingli also establish the quarterly routine of taking the Lord's Supper that has become a common pattern in a lot of Protestant churches. And you think through, why did Zwingli do that? Well, for so many of the people he was ministering to, the Mass was the center of worship. It didn't really matter what the preacher had to say from, from God's Word. I need the Mass. I need the grace. I need the Eucharist. And so Zwingli, by not doing the Lord's Supper every week, actually it was his attempt to, to kind of get the people away from seeing the Mass as the center of worship and bring them again to the Scriptures and to Christ and to the sufficiency of Christ alone by His grace for the forgiveness of sin. Calvin did uh, communion weekly, uh, or Calvin strived for weekly communion, and Zwingli argued for a memorialist view of the supper, which became a big debate amongst the Reformers, which we don't have time to go in tonight. Um, but again, we see that this emphasis during this Reformation era is returning to the Scriptures. What does the Bible have to say? Let's do away with all this kind of invented tradition that has come up over these last several centuries, and let's go back to the Scriptures. And nobody did that better, I think, than the Puritans, the Puritans. Again, Jeremiah Burroughs, who we talked about this morning, he was a Puritan. The Puritans were a group of Christians in England who wanted to further purify the church of England. And we don't have time to go into the origins of the church of England tonight, but they saw that the, a lot of what was happening in the church of England was halfway reformed. They were trying to be Protestant and Catholic at the same time. And they say, no, 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 we need to further purify the church, further reform the church. And that's what the Puritans decided to do. And so one of the big differences is that the, the bishops of the Anglican church, of the Church of England, thought that, you know, if the church, if the Bible was silent on a matter, then the church then could act in any way it thought best. But the Puritans insisted when it came to worship that the Bible needs to sanction everything we do when it comes to worshiping together, every detail of worship. And this leads into a bigger issue that we'll talk a little bit more about next week, but we'll, we'll bring up right now is this difference between the regulative principle and the normative principle. The regulative principle states that, if the Bible, that, that, that what we do for worship, we do what the Bible explicitly says that we're supposed to do. And if the Bible doesn't say that we're supposed to do it, then... We don't do it. We do what the Bible says. And the normative principle takes a different approach. It says, yeah, we do what the Bible says, but we're also free to do other things that the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn. And you can see how each of those positions begin to take you in a very different trajectory. And so the Puritans insisted on that idea of the regulative principle. No, we do only what the Bible says we do in corporate worship. And a lot of their service kind of looked very similar to, to our service, right? Uh, there was confessions of sins. There was a prayer for pardon. There was a metrical psalm. They didn't play music or write their own songs back then. They, they, they were so committed to, to Scripture alone that they, they only sang psalms in metrical order. And there was a prayer for illumination. There was Scripture reading. There was a sermon. There was baptisms. There was a long prayer. There was the Lord's Prayer. There was the Apostles' Creed. There was another metrical psalm. And then there was the benediction. Right? So these elements of worship are pretty plain, pretty simple, but this was what the worship looked like for the Puritan churches. And a guy, a historian named Horton Davies, I think really captures uh, Puritan worship and what makes it so unique, particularly as opposed to Catholic or Anglican worship. And so here's, here are four things he identifies. He says, one, it's grounded in scriptural authority. It's grounded in scriptural authority. And there was this cutting away from tradition that had begun to grown, grow over the scriptures, and it was a back-to-the-basics approach of what does the Bible say we need to do. Secondly, it was extremely simple. It was unornate type of worship. It was very plain, and that was reflected in their buildings, which they didn't call churches. They called meeting houses, and there wasn't nothing fancy about them, right? There was a focus even on making the pulpit and the, script, uh, and the scriptures themselves, the Word of God, centered and the way they architecturally designed their building. So they put the pulpit right dab in the middle to centralize the Word of God. 
And there was also this thirdly, this affirmation of the dynamic role of the Holy Spirit, that we need the Holy Spirit to help illuminate the soul to understand what God's word has to say. And so there was an extemporaneousness to Puritan worship that was unheard of in Catholic and Anglican worship services, going beyond the prayer book. So they had pastors who prayed extemporaneously, which was a big deal. That didn't typically happen, but that was something the Puritans believed in. And then fourthly, uh, there was deep concern for the people of God to be sharers in worship, not spectators of worship. In other words, worship isn't something you sit back and watch. It's something you participate in, that you're engaged in your affections as you're engaging with the Scriptures in worship. So Puritan preaching typically lasted about an hour, with some sermons going upwards to two to three hours. But the Word of God was central in terms of Puritan worship. So now we're going from the Reformation era, and now we're getting a little closer to home as we look at worship in modern evangelicalism, which kind of kicks off with the, the launch of the First Great Awakening in the 1730s and the 1740s. And, and so as we think through the First Great Awakening, what began to happen there is a big rupture when it comes to the, the established church. Because what began to happen is worship began to happen outside of the church itself. You had guys like John Wesley, guys like George Whitfield that were doing open-air preaching. You had people getting converted outside of the local church itself. And so the First Great Awakening brought a crisis in a lot of ways to these means of grace, of worship, of practices in the church uh, for the Puritans and for those who would come after them and for early evangelicals. In fact, not to bore you too much, but this is a, a lot about what my dissertation will be on as I write it, hopefully, one day <laughs> in the coming months, um, but is thinking through how the Great Awakening, in particular for John, Jonathan Edwards, shifted the understanding of the means of grace in the Christian life. But the first Great Awakening provided kind of a rupture and kind of set the, the foreground, so to speak, for what would come, and I think a bigger rupture when it comes to worship, in the second Great Awakening, which was in the early 1800s. Because what began to happen and the second Great Awakening was a different theology that undergirded revival. And so the first Great Awakening believes quite strongly in the sovereign work of God and bringing revival about. And then the second Great Awakening began to, to say, well, you know, revival can be manufactured. So revival becomes revivalism. And if we can do the right things, if we can order our service the right ways, if we put the right practices in place, then we can cause revival to happen through our own efforts. And so you got guys like Charles Finney, driven by pragmatism. What works? What gets people engaged? What gets people uh, uh, engaged in worship? And we see a lot of things begin to develop, these new means that had never been practiced in the history of the Christian church. One of those was the anxious bench, the anxious bench of Charles Finney. And this was an invention of Charles Finney in which those, as he's preaching out kind of in the open air, if you wanted to be saved, you wanted to become a Christian, then you were invited to come to the front and sit on the anxious bench, indicating that you were ready to be converted. And so this, of course, is a prelude to the invitation system that we see particularly take off in the 20th century. And so as that, these new measures come about, these new systems, uh, these worship practices, these new measures, we see that kind of begins to, to advance further in the early 20th century with fundamentalism and revivalism, you got guys like D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, who begin to practice these tent revivals in which altar calls become the thing, right? They're doing them as they're traveling about, and people are coming forward in invitations. And so what's happening is outside of the church, these practices are happening, and people are coming to Christ. It seems to be working. And so you see local churches then say, all right, well, if if Billy Sunday's doing it, then we need to be doing that on Sunday morning. Or if Billy Graham's doing it, we need to take what he's doing and bring it into our own worship on a Sunday morning. And so what began to happen was a, a, a kind of this undergirded idea of what works guides how we worship. Like whatever gets people engaged, gets people in the board, gets decisions made, then we're going to do that. And you can see how this subtle shift of idea and theology begins to pave the way for what would become the seeker-friendly church that began to boom in the 1980s and the 1990s and, and even still around today. 
This is the idea that if we can appeal to the masses, if we can win the seeker, if we can attract the lost to come on Sunday morning, then we can slap them with the gospel on the way out and try to, to get a decision made, right? So you see what's being driven here is not what does God say about how we are to worship, but what works, what gets the job done, what gets people down the aisle, what gets a response. And so the seeker-friendly approach began to do all sorts of things, smoke screens and, and, and lights and, and rock bands. And what began to happen was the seeker-friendly movement in which lots and lots of people were, were coming into the church in these mega churches, but few people were really being converted, few people were really being discipled. And so what do we learn as we think through this very quick run-through through church history? And I know it's been brief. I know it's a lot of material really fast all at once. But I think there's a couple lessons here that are worth, worth paying attention to. One of them is that throughout church history, there have been seasons of decline and renewal in Christian worship. There have been seasons of decline and renewal. There have been times of unfaithfulness in the church. And there have been times when the Lord has brought his spirit in powerful ways to revive us again to reinvigorate the worship of the church. Second thing I think an observation that we have to make note of is that theology shapes how we worship, whether we realize it or not. Theology shapes how we worship, whether we realize it or not. So as we think about the sacramental theology that began to develop in the medieval age of the Catholic church, well, that obviously leads to the change in the church's worship practice as Catholic mass becomes the norm. And as we think about the second great awakening which was driven in large part by an Arminian understanding of soteriology. We see this idea that new measures can be implemented to entice people to make a decision because salvation really isn't up to the Lord. It's really up to you and your decision. And so we see a change in worship practice undergirded by this particular understanding of soteriology. So another point that I think needs to be made, a historical lesson to be learned, is who is corporate worship for? This is another question that I think we have to ask, particularly as we think through the last 100 years of the church and for the seeker-sensitive movement in particular, is who is corporate worship for? Is worship on Sunday morning for the believer, for edifying the believer, or is it for reaching the lost? I think ideally we would say both, right? Both. But which one takes precedent? And I'm of the conviction that corporate worship of the church is primarily for the edification of the believer. The, the, the goal of corporate worship is first and foremost to worship God, but to help build up the body of Christ and the word of God. But at the same time, we should seek to make our worship services seeker comprehensible. Not seeker friendly, meaning, all right, whatever you want to do out there, if you want to play Highway to Hell on Easter Sunday, we'll do it. And the church has done that, by the way, right? Um, no, we're, we're not going to do that, right? We're, we're not going to cater to your every whim. We're not going to give you a BMW if you come on Easter Sunday, right? But we do want you to come. We want to welcome you. And we want you to be able to understand what's going on up here as we worship the Lord. We want you to be able to understand what the Word of God says. We want to explain why things are happening the way they are. And above all, we want you to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't seek to be seeker-friendly, but we should make our worship seeker-comprehensible. Another thing we learn is that the scriptures are sufficient in instructing us how we, are to wish, how we are to worship. And the second we as a church begin to stray from that conviction that the scriptures are sufficient, the moment you begin to drift from that is the moment you are led to error in all sorts of ways. And so these are a few observations I think we learn as we look to the history of the Christian church and the history of Christian worship. And again, that's a very brief overview but again, I think there's important lessons there as we think through how we worship as a church and how we seek to worship as a body. And that's what we'll get into more next week as we look at the elements of worship and the practice of worship. So if you've got some questions, you can come find me afterwards while we're cleaning up. But thank you for being here tonight. And let me close this out with a final word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for Lord, this brief run through through the history of Christian worship. And Lord, we've seen uh, Lord, seasons of decline and renewal, seasons of faithfulness and of unfaithfulness. And Father, we pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, and that as we do, we would look to the authority of your word and your word alone. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding of your scriptures, and Lord, that we would let our worship be regulated by what your word instructs us to do. Lord, not seeing that as limiting, but seeing it as freeing, 
as we worship you as you've commanded us, knowing that you have promised to work in our lives through these means, these practices of worship that you've given to your church. Father, we pray that as Redemption Church, you would find our worship pleasing to you, that we would worship in a way that is honoring to you. And Father, we pray that our hearts would continually be engaged as we worship you in spirit and in truth. So Father, I thank you for my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would bring us back next Sunday as we gather yet again to worship you on the Lord's day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.